This is God's Word. Now in Sanballat and Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall, and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ano. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? So pause for a quick second. If you're just jumping into Nehemiah, what's going on is God has called his exiled people back to his city, Jerusalem, to rebuild And so for over a stretch of 100 years, God's people have been rebuilding the temple and now with Nehemiah, the temple walls. And so when Nehemiah says, why should I come down? What he's saying is he's saying, I can't come down from the work that God has called me to and our people to. And what his enemies were asking him to do was to come down from the building project and to travel a day's journey to the northwest near Samaria. All right, so let's continue here. In verse 6, and they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Open because he wants everybody who touches it to read it. This would be like a tweet in the ancient context <laughs> an open letter. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. This is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports, the, the real king, Artaxerxes. And he'll hear of it. And so now come let us take counsel together. He's charging him with sedition. Verse 8. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And understood and saw that God had not sent him. He was a false prophet. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. And here's a prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, 
and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Verse 15, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him. Because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, And his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Okay, this is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak for your servants who are listening? Lord, also, there are those of us in, the, in your midst uh, that don't really know what to think of you, and particularly this text that we just heard aloud. What on earth could this ancient text have to do with our life and struggles today? Well, we ask that you would bridge that gap for us this morning. By your Holy Spirit, draw near, and would we see the greater Nehemiah, Jesus, in his fullness, and would we worship him, and maybe find rest in him when we haven't found rest for a long time. And it's in his name we pray this. Amen. Well, I missed uh, being with you all last Sunday. It was probably impossible to miss last Sunday, but there was a group of us, about 20 plus, of uh, Hope Men in the New River Gorge, um, sort of trying not to die, which was great. It was a lot of fun. We did a lot of fun stuff. We climbed, we rappelled, we rafted, we hiked. But the best part for me always is Saturday night worship. We gather around the campfire, we sing, I give a message. And it's really one of the highlights of my year. And so leading up to the trip, uh, I was very excited about the climbing. I was very excited about the rappelling. I was very excited about the hiking. But what I was most looking forward to was Saturday night worship. If I'm totally honest, it was also what I was most afraid of. And let me just tell you why. Because I knew that the fire pit available at the camp is the only fire pit. It's a communal fire pit. And it's a big camp. And so the people pleaser that I am, I can just imagine other campers sauntering down to the fire pit while we're having Saturday night worship. And there's always that chance. Last year it didn't happen at all. The pit was ours. (laughs) We claimed it. And we had a great time. And so you might be thinking, so what, Joe? What a great opportunity to proclaim Jesus to those who don't know him. Well, that's great. That's great. I'm glad you think that way, and I need you on my team, because the entire day I was equal parts excited and equal parts afraid. I didn't want to lean into that awkward. (laughs) Because we were doing a full-on worship service, like songs and a sermon. I mean, this full-on, what you're seeing here. I wanted to blend in. It's like when I go on vacation with my parents. I want to pretend that I'm like a local or wherever we're visiting. And it seems like my parents want to do everything they can to sort of stick out. And I kind of walk away from them because I want to blend in, you know. I want people to think that I'm from fill in the blank. And same was with this camp. I wanted people to, I wanted to blend in. I wanted to, I wanted people to think highly of me there. And I was afraid. I was afraid. I'm being honest. I was just afraid that we might invite scorn or ridicule. 
Well, sure enough, there were three visitors just before we started worship. Not like last year. And when I heard their voices, my stomach clenched. So sociologists, let's back up a bit. They call Christianity a counterpublic. They call Christianity, especially in our cultural moment, uh, a counter-public. We are a community that follows Jesus, and Jesus is, um, uh, if we follow Him, and if we're listening to His Word, then we are just going to be different. We just are. We're going to be a counter-public, or a counter-culture. A counter-public is who we are. The problem is, if you are a people-pleaser like me, you don't like that part of the faith. You would like to fit in and follow Jesus. Amen? problem is we're sitting in a communal fire pit. And that can create fear. That can generate boatloads of fear. Some, some conservative voices are... Uh, they, they make a living, I think, whipping up fear in the Christian counterpublic. And then there's others who are perhaps a little bit um, more measured about our cultural moment. But both voices would agree that it is increasingly... Hard to affirm the faith and act accordingly in our age. We're a weird group sitting around the fire pit. That's just who we are. We're weird. (laughs) We are. We're weird. And if you're like me, we're afraid to be publicly faithful because of that social cost. Well, Nehemiah is a good help to us. If you want to see that fire pit. There's Max up at the top. He actually came down from Michigan to do this thing. He and his wife moved up to Michigan recently. But there's the fire pit, and that's where we were sitting. Well, Nehemiah gives us a great resource to be a counterpublic in our day. Because here, Nehemiah has a real, not imagined, enemy. See, I was living with imagined enemies in my brain, and that alone was hard. But think about this. Nehemiah had a real, not imagined enemy. So in verse 1, as you saw in our text, it said, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies. They see their window closing because the wall is being completed and everything's kind of coming to a close in 52 days. They see their window closing, and so they ramp up their sabotage effort. And so Nehemiah's response to this sabotage effort ought to be very helpful to us. What he does for me is he gives us three prayers that we should pray when we are feeling that pressure. If you recall, Jesus assured us that there's a cost of discipleship so that even in Jesus's day, we see this in John six. It's amazing. Even in Jesus's day, those who were following Jesus, who saw Jesus face to face, who saw his miracles, even they started to walk away because of the social cost. And when Jesus looks at his disciples as 12 and says, so are you going to leave me too?" Do you remember what Peter says? Peter says, essentially, he says, look, I would. <laughs> Trust me, I would. But only you have the words of eternal life. And there's a cost. And if you're like Peter, you're like, look, I am barely hanging on to a thread here with you, Jesus. And I think this might be helpful to you. I think this might be encouraging to you when you're afraid to be faithful. Nehemiah teaches us to pray. 
Have you seen it all throughout Nehemiah? Nehemiah has constantly been driven to prayer. In our chapter alone, in verse 9, he sort of shoots off a prayer. And then in verse 14, you see it again. He shoots off a prayer. In verse in chapter 1, he's he has a completely long uh, uh, prayer that we see sort of crafted over the year. But here, he just sort of shoots these prayers off. And so what I would like to encourage us to do when we are afraid to be faithful is to pray. And in particular, these three prayers. First prayer is this. Lord, make me bold. Lord, make me bold. When you're afraid in the face of opposition, real or imagined, simply admit it, okay? Admit it. I'm afraid, Lord, I don't have boldness. That's what's in that prayer. It's a backwards prayer of confession. Lord, make me bold. It says, I'm not bold. Lord, make me bold. Give me a confidence. Give me a courage that I don't have. Ask God for it. And there are two things that have the potential to make us bold in Christ. God's mission, which is larger than any other thing in your life. And God's opinion of you, which is bigger than any other opinion in your life. And so we see this at play with Nehemiah. So we can pray, Lord, make me bold in your mission. Notice how Nehemiah responds to the threats in verse 3. He says, I'm not going to fall into your trap, which is what it was, remember, Because what I'm doing is too great, he says. Verse 3, do you see it? What I'm doing is too great. He doesn't say, I'm too great for what you're asking me to do. He's saying, what I'm up to is too great. He was so captured by the mission of God. He was so captured by what God was calling him to do that he was able to say, no. What I'm doing is too great. And he was swept up into it. And so we can pray, Lord, make me bold in your mission. Give me an appropriate size of what it is you're calling us to. What it is that you've called me to take part in. We also pray this, Lord, make me bold in your opinion of me. And so when the first attack doesn't work, there's really a second attack. And when that doesn't work, there's a third attack, this time by the false prophet, Shemaiah. Do you remember this? Shemaiah says, come into the Lord's house, come into the temple, and we can talk because people are going to kill you and we'll be safe there. This guy is shady. And Nehemiah knows it. He's like, no prophet would ask me, me, who's not a high priest, to go into the house of God. What this guy is trying to do, Nehemiah understood right away, is trying to, have, is trying to force me to commit a career-ending sin. That's what it would have been. And Nehemiah smells the smoke and simply says, Should such a man as I run away? And when I read that, I'm like, man, Nehemiah has a healthy self-concept. <laughs> Should such a man as I do that? And he had this healthy self-concept, this confidence, this boldness, not because he was reading self-help, but because he understood that he was a covenant member of God. God had sort of called over him and said, you are mine. That's powerful. This is the same thing that made the Apostle Paul bold. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3, Paul says this. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. I read that and I'm like, Lord, make it so in my heart. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself, he writes. He goes, my conscience is clear. 
But that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul knew that because of Jesus, and we see this on play all the time in his letters, he knew that because of Jesus, the verdict is in. Because of Jesus and because of his trust in Jesus' perfect life and his death on his behalf, Paul knew that the verdict is in. The verdict is in. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who stand in Christ, in Christ's perfect record, in Christ's substitutionary death. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. And what Paul does here is he simply says, because the only court that matters, God's court, the verdict is in. I don't care what lower courts say about me. That's a powerful boldness that can only come from the verdict of God. He didn't bother with the million little courts in his life. And you have a million little courts too. There's a million little courts that are sort of passing judgment on you. Some are real, some are imagined. And when I was sitting at that fire pit, I was thinking, man, there's a court and they're going to make fun of me and I'm going to look weird and I'm going to be judged. And we, and we might even have some kind of some people talking about us in their tents. <laughs> Sounds so, so small, but it's so big in my heart. And if I, like Paul, stand in the complete final verdict of God in Christ, not guilty, you're mine, then I can say, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. I can't even judge myself well. I'll leave it to God. And we can have rest. And we can be bold. I'll never forget... A prominent pastor who is who is very biblical, very orthodox, get grilled by a news person on live television. It was Pierce Morgan. And Pierce Morgan was was putting this pastor's feet to the fire by asking him all the hard questions. Well, what about this? What do you think about hell? What do you think about biblical sexuality and so on? And the pastor said calmly in a tone that was very respectful. And that was not at all rude. Pierce, I really want you to admire me. But I care more about God's admiration. When we are afraid, we need to pray that God will give us a glimpse of two things. The mission that He's called us to In his opinion of us, how he feels about you. His mission that has spanned across millennia. He is restoring all things that have been broken by sin to himself. He's rescuing broken people and the broken world. He's rescuing dead people. People who are dead in their trespasses. He's bringing them to Jesus. He's going to restore every broken thing in this world. Everything that is bent will be restored. And he is calling you. He saved you to take part in that. Do you understand that that He has called you in your brokenness and with your brokenness to take part in that? His rescue mission is particularly designed for broken vessels like me and like you with fears and doubts and histories 
because in our weakness, his power is made perfect. And so when we're swept by that huge mission, we can have a boldness. But then also God's opinion. David Benner, in the very beginning of one of his books, he says, Right now, if I were to ask you, how does God feel about you? What would you say? Right now. How does he feel about you? And in all of his counseling, he says, the number one answer he gets, and the majority of the answers he gets is, Disappointment. I mean, I think he's okay with me, maybe. He's mad, he's angry. And then he just catalogs all of the scripture that says, here's how God feels about his own. He sings over you. He delights in you. He's like a father who is not fickle. And when we make mistakes, our perfectly good Father in Heaven delights in His children. When we sin, when we rebel, He still makes a feast for us, like the prodigal son. How does God feel about you? The Apostle Paul was able to rest in the final verdict that we have in Jesus, and so are you. And that can make you bold. That can make you bold. So that's the first prayer. Lord, make me bold. But there's a second prayer. Lord, make me humble. After we pray for boldness, we need to pray for real humility. Remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less often. Let's not mistake humility for some kind of like uh, medieval sort of self-hatred. You know, Humility is being wrapped up in the things of God, which we just talked about, and being wrapped up in how to love and serve others. Because our cup is full. That's humility. Humility is being in awe and therefore being resized in the presence of God. It's being in awe of God and therefore being resized in the presence of God. That's humility. And we can pray for this in three ways. Lord, make me humble enough to see my danger. So when Nehemiah doesn't, doesn't meet Sanballam and Geshem, they send an open letter slandering him. And it's meant to make Nehemiah succumb to the social backlash, to make him afraid. But notice how in verse 9, if you cast your eyes onto the text, Nehemiah prays for God to strengthen his hands. So in other words, the slander is, and the hope is that this guy would become weak. And then Nehemiah in verse 9 says, Oh God, I'm weak. He admits that he is weak. And so we too can pray, Lord, make me humble enough to see my danger. Number two, we can pray this. We can pray, Lord, make me humble enough to submit to God's word. Any issue you face, there seems to be two paths. The path of faithfulness to what God says, and then the path of faithfulness to what the world says. Now notice, both are acts of faith. We're both taking it on faith that this is the good and right and true, beautiful way. And the world's word on any matter is so powerful. What we need is God-wrought humility to submit to God's way. And to trust it's good, even if we don't think it's good 
And this is Nehemiah's response to the false prophet uh, Shemaiah. Remember his boldness? He says, should, should such a man as I run away? When Shemaiah says, come into the temple. He says, should such a man as I run away? That's his boldness. But then see his humility. He says, he says I can't go into the temple and live. I'm a sinner. Derek Kidner says in, in this, this is the unique combination of humility and boldness that comes to God's people. Bold enough because we are identified with God. Humble enough to know we don't deserve it. So Lord, make me humble enough. Lord, make me humble enough to submit to your way. So Nehemiah displays a final humility in his prayer in verse 14, if you take a look. In verse 14, Nehemiah says a prayer giving final justice to God. He says, remember what they did. Essentially, I'm going to do what's right. And I can't, I can't carry this anymore, God. I'm going to give it to you. I can't carry the injustice of what they're doing on my shoulders. I'm going to give it to you, God. Remember chapter 5, Nehemiah is passionate about justice. But we see here in this text a humility. He knows that final justice comes only from God. So he's content to do the right thing and then give it to God. That's gospel humility. Humbled by your sin and God's majesty, you walk this world with humility. We respond to criticism with a deeper repentance. They knew that Nehemiah had a temptation to fall because of fear. That's why they attacked him in three different ways and attacked his fear. And what Nehemiah does amazingly is he doesn't say, I'm not a fearful man. He says, Lord, help me. I'm I'm weak. My hands are about to fall. And let me just encourage you to do the same thing, okay? And here's how God may answer your prayer for humility. When somebody criticizes you, or when you experience attack, Allow that to be an opportunity for you to do deep work into your soul and to just admit it and say it actually goes deeper. So in the fourth and fifth century, as an example, a lot of Christians, they headed for the desert and they did it to escape the Roman Empire. And apparently a lot of brothers and sisters in the desert were jealous of a guy named John the Short. They had really cool names back then. John the Short. And so John the Short, they wanted to sort of attack him. They were jealous of him and they wanted to attack him. And they said, and I just heard this, John, your cup is full of poison. They like to speak in images. You know, we're very rational. The desert, the desert Christians, they were not. They just spoke in pictures and images. And sometimes that, I think, gets them into some trouble in some deep water. But in this case, what we see is we see them saying, your cup is full of poison. You know what John the Short says? He says this. Yes, it is. But you said that only when you saw the outside. I wonder what you would say if you saw the inside. And that reminds me of Jack Miller, sort of a modern day desert father. Because what he used to say when people would come up to him after he preached and criticized his sermon or, or criticized his leadership, he would say, thank you. Um, would you pray for me? Because what you just said only scratches the surface. I mean, there's a deep well of sin going on in here. And I need your prayer. Okay, so we allow and we, we allow uh, these things to draw us into deeper repentance and humility. We don't get defensive. 
but we are able to relax in how God feels about us. So that's our second prayer. Lord, make me humble. And this third prayer is powerful. Lord, make your name great. When we orient our soul to the glory and to the fame of God, we are free. We're no longer living in fear of other people's opinions. When it's God's name that we're most concerned about, then our name starts to shrink to its appropriate size. When God's fame is foremost in our heart, it recalibrates everything. No prayer is more important. Lord, be famous today. I mean, Jesus said, you want to know how to pray, disciples? All right, I'll teach you how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, say it, hallowed be your name. Hallowed, the old word. Glorious be your name. Famous be your name. The very first thing the Lord teaches us to pray is, Lord, as I enter into this day, as I think about the million things going on in my workplace, as I think about all the drama that's going on over here in my family life, as I think about everything in my past and I try to push it away, whatever it is that's going on inside of our soul, we say first, the beginning of the day, hallowed be your name. We reorient our entire life to make his name famous. And when we do that, everything changes. And this is what happens at the close of our passage in verse 16. It says, when all of our enemies heard of what happened, in other words, uh, our faithfulness, this thing came up in 52 days. All of the nations around us were afraid. And that word afraid means in awe and fell greatly, fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. And so what we have here is what I'll call the paradox of persecution. The paradox of persecution is this. All of these enemies were circling the wagons around Nehemiah and his crew. And all of the nations, all of them, north, south, east, and west, were coming alongside. And then what happened was God moved in such a way into his persecuted minority group. When that happened, all of the nations were close enough to see him move. Their attacks weren't far away. Their attacks were close, and therefore they saw God move. And the text says, God's name became great. The paradox of persecution. Paradox of persecution was summed up by Tertullian in the third century. He says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And we can take that literally, which it often is literal, but we can also take it as an image. Faithfulness in the face of hardship is actually how Christians and the church grow. So look at Iran as an example, the fastest growing church in the world. Did you know that? Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. They've grown more in the past few decades than in the last few centuries. And yet, get this. According to Open Doors World Watch, it is in the top 10 hardest countries to be a believer. Christians in Iran, when asked, why is this happening? Why is the church growing when it's, become, when it's really hard to be a Christian? And they, they tend to say the same thing. They say, well, we have a great evangelist. Uh, it was the Ayatollah Khomeini, 1979. When he cracked down on us. 
when he cracked down on us, the church started to grow. We saw the bankruptcy of his way. And we saw the glory of the narrow way, Jesus. That's the persecution paradox. And we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Iran and we can recalibrate our own lives as we experience our own persecution or real or imagined. We can pray, Lord, make your name famous. And that should change the way we approach our social pressures and our fears. I know it does mine. We can pray that our lives are oriented towards the glory and the fame of God's name, which will increase our ability to stand firm. I love this. Recently, Ray Ortland he shared a photo of his mother's gravestone. It's at the bottom. Anne Ortland. Magnifying the Lord with Ray and exalting his name together. I mean, that is the thing to live for. That's what I want on my tombstone. I want this prayer that God's name would be magnified to be so characteristic of my life that it's what people see when they see my tombstone. It's a beautiful image. And it's for broken failures like you and me. We can magnify his name. The way we do it is we exult in his glory even in our weakness. So your awe of God has to be bigger than your awe of other people in order to survive. Um, we need to pray, Lord, make us bold. We need to pray, Lord, make us humble. And we need to pray, Lord, make your name great. And he will answer that prayer. He delights to answer that prayer. Let's pray for that now. Lord, we are grateful that we stand on the shoulders of of Nehemiah, but more importantly, that we stand in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus, who, who makes us humble, he had to live and die for us. We're sinners. We can't do this. Jesus, who also makes us bold. And Jesus, who makes your name great. Lord, we pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.